After a year's wait, the 14th annual Spokane International Film Festival is underway, and film fans from all over the Inland Northwest will have through next weekend to see some of the best feature films, short films, and documentaries the world has to offer. I'm Mary Pat Truthart, this week's host of Movies 101, and along with Dan Webster and Luke Baumgarten, I'm going to preview some of the more notable spiff offerings, as well as opine about two non-festival screenings, Shame and The Artist, the latter of which earned a total of 10 Academy Award nominations. So don't touch that dial, because Movies 101 is coming up next, right here on Spokane Public Radio. The Movies 101 podcast is made possible by the members of Spokane Public Radio. Become a member at spokanepublicradio.org. Thanks for listening to Movies 101. This is Movies 101. Hi, I'm Mary Pat Truthart, part-time film critic, full-time law professor at Gonzaga Law School. And I'm Dan Webster, film critic for Spokane Public Radio and blogger for Spokane7.com. I'm Luke Baumgarten. I'm a writer and critic at The Inlander. And welcome to this week's installment of Movies 101, the show that looks behind the radiant curtain of Hollywood magic and tries to glean the glow of quality or determine if such quality actually exists. This week is special because it comes just after the opening of the 14th annual Spokane International Film Festival, which over its 11-day run will present more than 70 features, shorts, and docs from more than 20 countries at three different venues. The three of us are going to take a look at some of the films in the fest and try to point out the special screenings you won't want to miss. But we'll also check out two films that opened in mainstream theaters, one of which it was announced Tuesday has garnered 10 Oscar nominations. That film, of course, is the throwback of sorts, The Artist, shot in black and white and rendered in the style of a 1920s-era silent production. The other, British director Steve McQueen's Shame, was snubbed by the Academy, members of which who may have been turned off by the film's graphic representation of sexual obsession. Be that as it may, let's begin with The Artist, which has more than a suggestion of a star is born to its fantasy plot. Yeah, and though it's only kind of recently opened in Spokane and it's only playing on about a fifth as many screens as Underworld Awakening, everybody seems to know about this film, even if they call it that one silent film that Today Show talked about. And for a black and white film by a Frenchman that has almost zero dialogue, it's getting a lot of national attention. The 10 Oscar nominations, as you mentioned, Mary Pat, it got Tuesday, will probably only increase that. And I'm glad about that on one hand. You know, the story's compelling. There's a silent film star named Georges Valentin who uh, deals with the death of his medium, the silent film, just as a young upstart named Peppy Miller becomes one of the first stars of spoken film. They have a romantic entanglement, but the story is as much about fame as it is about love and how dangerous it is to mistake a fickle public's adoration for lasting connections. There are dance numbers in an adorable scene-stealing Jack Russell Terrier, a bombastic <laughs> scene-stealing John Goodman. The score is buoyant and saccharine and sometimes bombastic, as it must be, because it Mickey Mouse is along with the film's swelling tension in place of dialogue. And this isn't just a marketing gimmick. The, the artist is a, a silent film at its core. But because of this, I think, people are treating it as though it were a very un-Hollywood film. I found it to be the exact opposite. I found it to be just about the most Hollywood film I can imagine Hollywood making. 
Did, With so, the exception, possibly, of Warhorse. But right. go on. Go on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, besides the self-referential subject matter, the, you know, the film industry in the late 20s, the story arc is pure romantic comedy. Man meets woman, sparks fly, fate and pride keep them apart, but happily ever after is just a sad montage and a peppy dance number away. Uh, <laughs> then you've got the classic tale of lost stardom, where a superstar falls out of favor as an ingenue rises. You know, the only way this could have been more Hollywood, I think, is if it would have been shot, or better yet, converted in post-production to 3D. Still, I think... Good point. <laughs> what were they thinking? Yeah, I know. That's so, the sequel. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah. Well, I, I had a good time at The Artist, though, a really good time. It's a simple, joyous, effervescent film. It's nostalgic without being saccharine. Its cinematography is every bit as smart as the dance numbers. And there's this nice little aha moment at the end that kind of tells you just why Valentin's career nosedives in the era of the talkie. So, I don't know, though. Is this the best film of 2011? I'm not sure about that. What do you guys think? No, hardly. I think the best way to see the artist is to stumble upon it, to not know anything at all about it, and just go and say, what is this? Wow, they're not saying anything. Hey, it's a silent film. It's in black and white. Yeah. This so are we is telling people to go cool. get a sandwich right now while yeah, we're right, reviewing Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, basically don't listen to you anything know, else. I, I guess what I'm saying is that if you go in here with the expectations that it's got 10 Academy Award nominations and it's had all this hype, it's got 100% rating among top critics on Rotten Tomatoes, 97% among all critics. Wow. You know, if you go there with those expectations, you're going to go, this for that? I mean, it is ultimately a soft little caramel of a movie, of a story. But it's engaging. It's as peppy as Peppy Miller's name. The actor Jean Dujardin, who plays George Valentin, I will remember this guy's smile the rest of my life. Yeah, the, the movie is his smile. The woman who plays Peppy Miller, who also has an Oscar nomination, Bernice Bejeau, I guess. Yeah, Bejeau. And who, who among us wants to try to take a stab at pronouncing the filmmaker, the French filmmaker's Not name? Not I. Michelle. I can do the first in the word. Yeah. Hazana Vicious. There we yeah. go. All right. Brave man. Brave well, man. Dan, I'm glad that you focused a little bit on the acting performances because I thought that that was, as Luke said, you know, this film is upbeat. It's definitely saccharine. And you know I'm not a huge fan of those films. But I love the performances of these two lead actors, neither of whom I had ever seen before anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so I think that... Uh, Actually, you probably have seen Dujardin, but you don't remember him because... Because his performance of George Valentin is so, I don't know, overwhelming that it's like this guy's been this guy all along. Yeah. But he's been in a, a jillion French films. But you don't like to go to those films, so we never see any of them, Dan. <laughs> no, that's not true. Okay. We go see them, and then I complain well, about so, them. Uh, so I think people have probably been asking all of us about the artist. Well, you know, should I go see it? Because you know, there's something about it that doesn't sound appealing. And I do think that people should go see it because it is fun. I mean, it's uplifting. Of course, we saw it as the second half of a double feature after seeing Shame. So I'm sure oh, wow. that uh, <laughs> almost anything would have been a welcome change from that, which we'll be discussing in a couple of moments. But, Luke, I thought that you captured the artist very accurately in terms of all the good. And there's no real bad, but there's some yeah. things that are more mundane than maybe it's 10 Oscar nominations would lead you to believe. Right. And I'd kind of echo Dan's sentiment. Like, try to ignore or try to forget about the fact that you know that this just got nominated for 10 Oscars and go if you really want to spend an hour and 40 minutes smiling. Because yeah. I really did. I thought it was fun if for an hour and 40 if, minutes. If you're a fan of films like Take Shelter or Melancholia or Shame for Men, which we'll be talking about in a couple of minutes, right. this is not that in any way, shape, or form. 
but the artist is, on some level, the very essence of what classic Hollywood has always been. But I mean that in a good way. Maybe not a great way, Not yeah. certainly not 10 Oscars worth, but in a good way. <laughs> well, going in a completely different direction, we have Shame, the film written and directed by Steve McQueen, the man who in 2008 gave us the powerful tale of Irish political prisoners titled Hunger. That film starred an actor, Michael Fassbender, who at the time was relatively unknown. Now, following a number of big screen appearances from Inglorious Bastards to Haywire, Fassbender has become a big star who's not afraid to uh, reveal himself in every way possible. Dan? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does reveal himself, as does Kerry Mulligan, I have to say, also, at least in one scene. Uh, what do we say about shame? All right, you know, I can think of a couple of other movies that have portrayed, uh, I mean, these are serious films made by serious filmmakers starring A-level talent that have featured full frontal nudity and graphic sex. Let's go all the way back to, say, 1976, Nagasa Ushima's In the Realm of the Senses. Graphic sex all the way through. But how was the sex used? The sex was used as a way of telling a, a larger story about society and sexism and betrayal, trust, and so on and so forth. Then a couple of years ago, I guess in 2004, Michael Winterbottom, the British director, he made a little movie called Nine Songs. And he tried to make the point that in Nine Songs, it's just going to be a story, a love affair in which there will be real lovemaking. Well, anytime you have graphic sex, it overpowers everything else. And that Nine Songs came across to me like softcore porn. Now we have shame, and shame is the story of this guy who basically we see him getting up in the morning. He checks his uh, computer. Not which is for his just, emails. No, just absolutely full of the most smutty porn you can ever imagine. <laughs> and then he goes to work and does some job, which he does apparently very well, but we don't know what it is. But he takes time to go to the bathroom, and what he does in the bathroom, you need some Purell for uh, afterwards. And then he goes and picks up women. He admits through the film he's never had a relationship longer than four months. And probably four hours is more to the norm, if maybe four days. And so I see shame in, in one of two ways. This guy living alone in his own little world with not much of a past that's ever revealed in the film, except that he's from New Jersey and he grew up till, what, the age of eight in Ireland. Then his sister comes, played by Carrie Mulligan, and she's exactly the opposite he is. She's emotional. She's out there. She's suicidal. She's needy. She's trying to connect. And every time she connects with a guy, she immediately breaks up with him and then sends him long voicemails in which she professes <laughs> ever-dying love. And then there's this kind of uh, almost incestual, there is a, certainly an incestual overtone between the two. Thank God never acted out because we can only break so many taboos in this film. And then the film, for me, just ends. So on one hand, McQueen really knows how to make a movie. There are some scenes in here, like the song that Carrie Mulligan sings in a, a nightclub, in which the camera is just all on her. And it, it's just an amazing imaginative way of doing this and revealing something about the character. On the other hand, the movie just ends, and it's like, we didn't really ever learn why this guy is the way he is and wh why do I care? And so, I don't know, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really unsure about shame. I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> <laughs> I actually like the film quite a bit. And for me, it seems like critics are falling into two camps on this film. Your camp where the, you feel the film just kind of ends, it's maybe a half film. And then there's the camp that says it's really, despite the graphic sex, this puritanical diatribe 
for you know monogamy or something. And I don't really buy. I, I certainly don't buy the monogamy thing. I, think I don't this either. Is, it's interesting to me because it wasn't important to me that I knew what the trauma was in their childhood, you know, just that there was trauma. And it struck me that this was a story kind of meditating on the different ways people kind of deal with those sorts of traumas. And it goes to the polls here, you know. For every second that Michael Fassbender's character is buttoned up, his sister is mercurial. And you assume, you know, through their kind of dialogues and this, this one voicemail that she leaves him, you get a sense that uh, this trauma affected both of them equally. And I don't know if it was, you know, equally, child abuse or something. In a, certainly in a different ways, way. Yeah. And at the end, to speak specifically to your point, Dan, like, I feel like there's almost this over-reliance in Hollywood on the neatly packaged ending, the way that the artist ends, or the way most Hollywood movies end. And I liked the ending of this film because you realize that he has come to a point of decision where he can continue on with his previous behavior or make a change. It's clear by the end of the film that he wants to make a change, that his life is incomplete to him despite all the, the copious amounts of sex he's having. And then we get to a point of decision and then it's over. And well, so it was, I mean, it was I, satisfying for me. I, yeah, I mean, I think the problem here is if this is an addiction – and I believe that there is such a thing as addiction that plays out um, sexually, then I don't know if he would be able to make a decision. I mean, I think there would have to be some sort of intervening force. And, you know, he's already had problems at work. He's already had problems in relationships. He's already had potential problems with the law. And so, you know, if <laughs> that hasn't tipped him over the edge, who knows? But I think he need to get some help. I, oh, you think he do, or, or you think did he I should, think he was a well person? Or you no. think he should go and do another bar and pick a fight with some other young uh, yes, woman's I think he boyfriend and, and get his ass kicked in the street? <laughs> I think that the one thing that we haven't spoken to sufficiently about shame is these are A level acting performances. I thought Michael Fassbender was amazing. I yeah, mean, I have been watching good. him since he played Bobby Sands in Hunger. And Carrie Mulligan is almost unrecognizable at the beginning of the film. Um, yeah. She looks very different. And so I think this is a very hard film to watch. And I liked the way it used New York City as a backdrop. I loved the scenes on the subway, uh, although they were a lot less crowded. I guess he was traveling at off hours um, <laughs> than I remember um, the subways being. So this is not a film for everyone. I think it's actually leaving the AMC, so you'll have to catch it in some other venue. Oh, I'm sure it'll play at the Magic um, Lantern. Yeah. But there is definitely full frontal nudity, male and female. The acting performances are wonderful. And Luke, I probably liked it more than Dan did. And so I would say this is a film I would recommend to a specialty audience. How about that? <laughs> I think that's um, right. It's time to take a break on our Movies 101 set. In this first half of the show, we tackled The Artist in Shame. We'll be right back to tackle the delights of the 14th Annual Spokane International Film Festival. You are listening to Spokane Public Radio. Start spreading the I'm leaving today I wanna be a part of it New York New York I wanna wake up In a city 
And we're back for the second half of this week's edition of Movies 101. I'm Mary Pat Truthart, and my co-host Dan Webster, Luke Baumgarten, and I have already discussed the big screen offerings, The Artist, and Shame. Let's move on now to what the 14th Annual Film Festival has to offer. The festival kicked off on Thursday and will run through next Sunday, February 5th. And over that time, we'll have more than 70 films in total from 20-some countries. So, guys, what are the don't-miss moments of the week to come? Well, I think it begins tonight with Vision Quest, the screening of Harold Becker's 1985 film, shot in Spokane, starring Matthew Modine. Matthew Modine is supposed to be there and if for no other reason to see Madonna the way she looked in 1985, you know, it would be worth going to see that. And the tickets are three fifty, and they're available at the door. But also uh, on Sunday, there's a movie that, Mary Pat, it features you. It's called Crime After Crime. It's at 11. Well, no, it doesn't feature me. I'm yeah, going to host sorry. it. <laughs> yes, that's what I mean. Crime After Crime. Yes, starring Mary Pat Truthart. No, it's Sunday at 1130 a.m. at the Magic Lantern. You want to you tell us a little bit about that film? Well, it really focuses on the efforts of two attorneys to get a woman, Debbie Pegler, who was sentenced to life imprisonment for uh, involvement in the murder of her husband. They're trying to get her released. And she's already served a substantial portion of, uh, you know, more than 20 years. And so it's about her. It's about the issue of domestic violence. And for those law types in the listening audience, it's also about lawyering. Yeah, also on Sunday, there's this interesting little documentary called Waking the Green Tiger. It's about the, the nascent kind of environmental efforts in China. And it's, it's not a flashy film by any means. It actually kind of feels like a PBS documentary at times. But there's this really interesting interplay with these people who come from a culture that is very respectful of nature, but they also have lived in a relatively repressive communist regime for mm-hmm. uh, generations and are now kind of just finding their, the voice of dissent. When is it screening? It's uh, 3.45 on Sunday. The magic at the Magic Lantern, yeah. Well, I'm actually going to uh, talk about a couple of things. First of all, on Saturday the 28th, as well as Saturday the 4th at 2 p.m., Dan Webster, our own Dan Webster, will be hosting uh, film forums with some of the filmmakers. And it's a really casual, laid-back way to really have a conversation and a dialogue with some of these people who are involved in making uh, the films that are going to be at the festival. It's at the Magic Lantern in the small theater, and it's free. There are two films that I really wanted to pitch, and I picked out these films for two completely different reasons, uh, or they're two completely different types of films, but they have one thing in common. They're very lengthy. So on Wednesday <laughs> night, uh, there's a film, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, and it runs about two and a half hours. And it's this story about a murder that's occurred, and now this team of professionals doctor, prosecutor, police officers are taking suspects out to try to find where the body was buried. So that's the conceit of what they're doing. But it's really an opportunity for this group of five or six men to talk about a wide range of subjects that run the gamut from women to cooking to building a new morgue in the area to (laughs) politics. And I was fascinated by this particular film. And so I'm recommending that Wednesday, February 1st at 6.30. And then on Thursday, February 2nd, there's a film in the family 
about a father whose partner dies unexpectedly in a car accident. And these two guys have been parenting the now deceased guy's son. Uh, And this film is titled In the Family. And it runs two hours and 45 minutes. The filmmaker (laughs) actor will be there. It's a very slow, meditative look at what transpires in the lives of all of these people dealing with the death of this uh, person, dealing with the young child who's left behind. And there's also a law feature uh, to this particular movie. But I was just blown away by this this film, and I'm a huge, huge fan of In the Family. Uh, it will screen again on Saturday evening. And uh, there were two other films that I wanted to mention. One is Amador, which is a film that, Mary Pat, I think you and I saw it at the Seattle Film Festival last year. And it's showing up It's showing up here. It's a film from Spain. Uh, it plays uh, a Monday, January 30th at 6.30 p.m. at the Magic Lantern. And it's actually one of those films about immigration into Spain. A young woman, I think that she's from Guatemala, I can't remember, gets hired as a summer job to take care of, of an old guy who appears to be dying. And then something happens, and the movie goes in a completely different direction than the way you think it's going to go. Uh, but it deals with a whole lot of different issues, and I, I really enjoyed it a lot. It's going to be hosted by my friend Barbara Lost and by Natalia Ruiz Rubio, both of whom teach at Eastern uh, Washington University. And then on Tuesday at 6.30, also at the Magic Lantern, there's a film that I have not seen, but I want to see it. It's called The Front Line. It's a South Korean film about the Korean Civil War between North and South Korea. Apparently, I mean, it it, it certainly reads like something I want to read about combat and about uh, the horror of war. And it's going to be hosted by Sarah Lee Monroe, who's an assistant professor of theater and film at Eastern Washington University. I just had one more to mention. Uh, It's this weird little documentary called Man on a Mission. And if you've ever played computer role-playing games, or if you've ever been a parent who is worried about their child playing too many computer role-playing games, you owe either gratitude or scorn to this guy, Richard Garriott, who created the Ultima series, which is pretty a foundational video game. So this is a film for nerds of all stripes, because this guy, this is all uh, prelude to this man who has fantastic wealth based on this one video game he made in the 80s while he was a high school student, who decides that he wants to be the first son of an astronaut to go into space. His dad was an astronaut. His eyesight's bad, so he can only go into space, you know, privately. So he actually helps the Russian government fund their kind of civilian research. It shows a story about his journey uh, into space. It's just a fun little documentary about, you know, the lengths people will go to to achieve their dreams. And there are some great docs here. I mean, there are your typical sort of film festival docs, Kingdom of Survival, which is sort of a talking head documentary about what's going to happen in the future. Surviving Progress uh, falls into that same camp. I do think that we should mention that the three of us – uh, Luke, Dan, and I have all been volunteers in some capacity uh, with the Spokane International Film Festival, just as we're volunteers here at Spokane Public Radio. I also wanted to bring to people's attention that most of the films are screening at the Magic Lantern, and uh, you know the the houses there are, are relatively small. So if there's something you really want to see, you should consider getting tickets in advance at www.spokanefilmfestival.org. That's it for another episode of Movies 101. We discussed two mainstream films, The Artist and Shame, and also talked a bit about the ongoing 14th Annual Spokane International Film Festival. 
As always, we owe a debt of thanks to the staff here at Spokane Public Radio uh, who produce and engineer our show. And we thank you, our loyal listeners, as well. Make sure to check out our podcast, which you can access through the website, www.kpbx.org. And if you have any reactions, please feel free to email us at kpbx at kpbx.org. And here's hoping we see you at the festival.